This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, happy Friday. It's great to have your company for the Country Hour today. Coming up today, after almost a year of record high fertiliser prices, could the market be turning around? I'll have more on that soon. And uh, it's always nice to take a bit of a look around the state and see how properties are selling. 2022 was a big year for property sales, some massive sales around the place. So we're going to take a bit of a look at that now. And we'll start in the far west of New South Wales, where one of the largest landholders in New South Wales is selling a pastoral property in the state's far west. It's called Wyoming. It has a price tag of over $7 million. But the owner, Rob McBride, wants to find an Australian buyer. He says the time is right to sell with plenty of grass growing. But he told Michael Condon he's concerned about the long-term water supplies in the Darling, given moves to expand the floodplain harvesting licences in the north. Wyoming Station is about 100,000, 105,000 acres. It joins Talana and Papora, um, which is about another 400,000 acres. So literally, I guess I just want to consolidate my um, work and infrastructure on Talana and Papora over the next uh, decade or so. Um, Bought Wyoming uh, in the middle of a drought. Um, it's looking absolutely sensational now. And for those who want to look to buy it, um, you know, it's, it's looking good. And I think the future's pretty bright, both in goats and uh, merinos in this region. But you're worried about water security because of uh, the issue with the Darling and we saw with the issue of uh, uh, the amount of flow down the Darling. That's always been an issue for you. You're, you're, you're worried about that uh, longer term? Oh, look, I just want to consolidate and make sure that we do have water. I guess I've been fighting for many years. Uh, four times last year in the New South Wales uh, Upper House, a disallowance motion was put on water um, on the floodplain harvesting rules. Um, I believe in the next month or so before the election, the National Party will be pushing towards getting gazetted um, unsustainable long-term take on the Darling Barker through floodplains. The war's not over yet of those who want to over-extract and take too much. I know a lot of Australians think, oh, what are you talking about now? But um, longer term, they're talking about in the next decade, 30% less water coming down the Darling Barker to try and push through greater floodplain harvesting in the Northern Basin. And I really do think um, there's a war still to be fought and um, I'm still up for the fight because I really do think we've got to protect the Darling Barker longer term. Wyoming, what's the price tag? $7 million, is that right? Uh, seven plus. Um, I think, you know, for somebody who can buy an acre in any part of the world for 70 to $100, um, it's pretty good buying. Uh, over the time, we've probably averaged about 4,000 goats off per year. Um, and, you know, the prices have been good, and I think it certainly pays for itself. And for somebody who wants to get into the Western Division, I think there's not many holdings around that are like 100,000 acres. We've got good infrastructure, wool shed, good house. Um, it's a great way for somebody to come into the Western Division. And uh, by getting more people into the Western Division, that's a good thing. 
bring uh, new ideas and uh, a fresh approach to uh, Wyoming Station. So it'll be mainly goats, wouldn't be sheep so much these days? We can run up to about six, six and a half thousand sheep, Michael. So the facilities there uh, do that. Uh, a lot of people in the Western Division are looking dorpers and dharmas. Uh, maybe that's the way people want to go in this day and age. Uh, Shearing's getting a little bit harder each year. So it really is up to the individual to kind of assess the mix of goats and um, sheep as they see fit. But uh, certainly the potential for goats continues to be really substantial. Um, and without, you know, the, the upkeep of uh, merinos, which is uh, a fair bit of involvement. And, and there's that abattoir, the new abattoir at Burke as well, that's, uh, you know, getting up and running. Look, the potential for goat in, you know, in Australia is phenomenal and overseas. And when they tend, you know, they look after themselves and they're breeding, uh, look, they're low maintenance. The market for goat is phenomenal across um, the world. What about the issue of uh, the Chinese? They've been interested in this property in the past. You, you're not going to sell to the Chinese? I would like... Um, the, when I first bought it seven years ago, it was uh, Chinese were looking to buy it. And uh, from my perspective, I really think Australians should uh, really keep control of their own land mass. Um, if you go to China and try and buy an acre of land, good luck, you can't. Uh, I think we've been a bit foolhardy as a nation over the last couple of decades, and to answer the question, Michael, I would like Australians to buy, Australians or Australian consortium to look towards buying Wyoming. What's the issue with the Chinese? You're worried about that whole sort of conveyor belt of production here in Australia and then shipping out the the goods or the produce direct to China rather than sort of creating jobs in Australia? Is that the issue? I'm not xenophobic. I just really believe Australians should really... The potential for food um, and security for our grandkids is we don't want to become serfs working for other nations uh, because in the generations to come, land, food productive land on the planet is becoming a rare and rarer commodity. Rob McBride talking about the plan to sell his pastoral property in the far west of New South Wales. And speaking of uh, rural property sales, they are expected to remain near historic highs in the southeast this year, despite a fall in some commodity prices. Tens of millions of dollars worth of prime farmland have gone under the hammer for record prices, up to $35,000 a hectare in some parts of the region, with a number of tightly held family-owned farms changing hands for the first time or yeah, basically the first time nearly in recent months. TDC Rural Property Consultant Tom Pierce says the strong market has also withstood the pressure from interest rate, hike, interest rate hikes as well. We definitely saw a, a slight shift but I think all in all with a softening of the price but then obviously a slight rise in interest rates did sort of corner the back of people's minds but there's still a lot of confidence in the industry overall and we've certainly seen that carry through some of the sales results that we've had. I think a lot of the purchases that we, we've seen have been generational purchases, so they're looking for not just themselves but also going forward with succession planning and other generations. So that they've been buying land, particularly those neighbouring properties and, and add-on blocks have been serviced pretty well. Yeah, I was keen to get your thoughts on, on what some of the drivers are because, as you say, uh, interest rates have gone up, what, two and a half times in the last 12 months, you know, for those on a variable rate. And um, the return on investment for corporates has, what, has that sort of slowed them up a bit? Yeah, we, we've handled a couple of larger properties, certainly through the Victoria area. And the general interest in those were from the, from the families, farming families and private enterprise more so than, than the corporates. I think it 
little bit, for sure. What are we seeing in terms of uh, some of the big key sales? Uh, and I know, you know, always a bit reluctant to talk about prices and things, but um, th- there were some historic highs reached in the last 12 months. Is that set to continue, do you think? I think it'll come down to the individual property rather than the market itself. Certainly the ones that we've seen that have that have been miles ahead than the average prices have been those specific properties that have been, you know, sit between two very strong neighbours or a property that really suits a couple of people's existing enterprises and, and bolsters what they already have. And that's certainly what we've seen with that auction we had at Lucendale in, in October where we saw the Binbrook property reach that sort of $14,100 an acre, which is well beyond what, what the expectations were. But it just showed that a, that a quality farm that was, you know, against one strong neighbour and, and really suited the, the, the eventual winner of the, on the day, their enterprise drove that price exceptionally well. You're working with another farming family who's been in the game, uh, you know, in terms of multi-generations for around 170 years, that property at Harrow coming onto the market. Uh, is this now, you know, you're seeing a little bit more of this families that are deciding to move out of the industry, picking this as the right time to do it? Yeah, I think that, that's certainly coming into it. Um, and I think some of it's just, just the timing of succession where where we're finding that the last generation has just got to the end of the road and, and not having um, the next next people to take it on as a full-time proposition. And we, we've certainly handled a, a few few properties across the board like that. And this is this probably at Harrow certainly one of those that they've just got to the time now where it's time to dispose of it. And it's a decision that people don't take lightly, especially you know after having such a long history associated with a property um, but timing does come into it and I think with, with the confidence still in the area and in the industry as a whole it, it is a good it's not a bad time to do it. Tell us Tom are leases keeping pace with this uh, hot price market as well? Yeah I look we've certainly seen a lease rate come up um, previously I suppose as a return on on property prices it has pulled back slightly um, it'll be interesting and, I, and I've discussed this with other agents whether the rise in interest rate rises and if there's a, a slight dip in buyer interest, we'll, we'll, whether this will feed back into a, a stronger appetite into lease country and it might see it come back up off those sort of more recent returns of sort of high twos and maybe 3%, we might see it creep up a bit more again. And Tom, just finally, it's obviously been a cracking season for the pastoral zone and parts of the mid-north and places that you know can struggle to uh, get a run of good years. But there are some great prices being paid for properties in that area, but we've also seen what some of those families looking to reinvest or move their enterprises into the southeast. Yeah, absolutely. We've seen a bit of a push down our way. I think that probably you know is a reflection on our area with the reliability of season and also that that massive resource that I think you know can be overlooked and slightly undervalued from time to time is our, is our underground water for both irrigation and, more importantly, general stock use. And how is the price holding up for water at the moment? Yeah, we, we've seen some pretty pretty reasonable prices for water. It's very hard to, to sort of see individual prices because a lot of water is transacted with property sales. Individual sales, there is there's a, a reasonable appetite for, for water throughout our area um, as people look to probably intensify on the back of those higher prices, try and bring another element into their farming enterprise. All in all, the the rural industry is in a fantastic position and there is still a lot of confidence and buoyancy in it as a whole. And and we're we're certainly seeing this carrying through the 
real estate uh, through land prices, um, particularly at the end of last year and, and the beginning of this year with some sales that we've had coming through. TDC Rural Property Consultant Tom Pearce speaking to Liz Rymel. It certainly does speak to the strength of the industry, but it doesn't make it easy to get into it, does it, when you're, when you're charging some of these prices? What was it, $35,000 a hectare in one part of the southeast? That's a pretty amazing price there. It is 17 minutes past 12. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au Proudly supported by the Condinen Group and ABC Rural. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. After almost a year of record high fertiliser prices, the market looks like it's beginning to come back down and uh, could even be easing off to just under $1,000 a tonne at some suppliers. Still pretty steep, but the thing is, Overseas, the fertiliser market has dropped even further, sitting at slightly more than $600 a tonne. Economic analyst and director of Episode 3, Andrew Whitelaw, explains the factors contributing to this difference to Alice Marshall. Yeah, so if we look at at fertiliser prices, especially synthetic fertiliser prices, they're basically highly correlated with natural gas and, and other energies as well, like coal. Uh, the majority of urea around the world is is made using conversion of of natural gas into into urea effectively with a, a whole process. So basically, natural gas is the feedstock for making urea. So it makes sense that when we have natural gas prices higher, then we have urea prices higher, and that's what we've really seen for the last, you know, at least twelve months. We've seen high high gas prices. Uh, one of those big factors has been the war in Ukraine, uh, but also other factors like the reopening after COVID has has also impacted uh, natural gas prices around the world. And so that's why we've seen a significant um, fertiliser price over the last 12 months. But you say that now this fertiliser price is actually starting to drop. Why is that happening? Because the war in Ukraine is still happening. Yeah, well, we're starting to see some, some good signs. And so if we look at uh, fertilizer prices in the last couple of months, they've come under a lot of pressure. And I'm talking about the the fertilizer price, the wholesale price to buy it from the Middle East. We buy most of our urea in Australia from the Middle East. You know, this month so far is trading at about 645 Aussie dollars a tonne, free on board. So obviously there's a bit of freight to get it here, not not a huge amount. And, uh, and then... So that 645 is is a lot lower than it was this time last year when it was closer to $1,100. And uh, so we are seeing a downward slide. But but basically what we've seen is the last year, in the last sort of couple of months, it's been a little bit milder, the um, the winter in Europe, which has reduced demand for, for gas. And there's also been a bit of demand destruction as people just couldn't afford to pay the gas prices they that were on offer for either industrial or domestic uses. But we're also seeing things like, uh, because of that high price of gas in Europe, we're seeing more cargoes of LNG going from the likes of China into Europe. And so we are seeing, uh, 
what what typically happens in, in economics is that high prices are the cure for high prices. So that is reflect being reflected in, in reducing gas prices and therefore reducing fertilizer prices. However, the big question remains is how much of that you know overseas fall gets passed on to on to local producers. You know, will yeah, I imagine fertilizer prices whilst they're they're not that transparent, it's hard to get a price. There's no publicly available data on Australian fertilizer prices. I imagine it's closer to the thousand dollars than the uh, you know the seven eight hundred dollars a ton mark. Mm, and that's certainly what what we're hearing on the ground is that while prices have dropped from the standard that they were over the past almost twelve months, they are still around that thousand dollars per ton mark. Do you think that they will keep dropping, or is the Australian market going to do its own thing? Okay, I, 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 unfortunately, I think the Australian market probably will do its own thing, and it'll take a long time for those prices to to flow through to the domestic market. Uh, but we shall see. All it takes is uh, you know somebody to come in and you know order a new order more cargoes for the new season, and uh, and then to be priced at a lower lower value, and to be able to price in with you know without having to uh, price in such a large margin. And I guess at the end of the day. Markets are markets, and the lowest price is what wins. Yeah, and so you mentioned that as it warms up in Europe, that also plays a key factor, and it is still fairly solidly winter over there. As we do move forward into winter over here and it goes into summer in Europe, do you expect those those international prices to keep going down as well? Look, the one thing I would say at the moment is we're still in an extremely sort of volatile environment where, where the market is very, very changeable. A lot of a lot of what happens in these markets are really determined by what is inside Putin's head and what he decides to do on any given day, and so that is the major concern. Is we don't really know what will what will happen, uh, so it is a fairly uncertain environment. Probably one of the most uncertain environments we've had for for a long period of time. All we can say at the moment is the trend has been downwards for the last couple of months, and all we can do is hope that you know some of that gets passed on to. Uh, to local producers, hopefully, hopefully fertilizer companies hedge their uh, hedge their risk, and uh, it flows through the same way that you know gra- changes in grain prices overseas generally flow through to Australia and vice versa. Andrew Whitelaw, an economic analyst and director of Episode Three dot net. Uh, hopefully, those prices do start to come down. It's certainly a pretty heady year for fertilizer costs in the last uh, year or so, but. Hopefully you were able to reap a, a decent crop to offset that, but there are plenty of people who perhaps um, have had to wear quite a high cost without the return. So uh, it's uh, been one of the big talking points of 2022. Hopefully it's not quite as big a talking point in 2023. We've got weather coming up next, but before I get to that, unfortunately there's another Queensland fruit fly outbreak that's been declared in Barmera following the detection of maggots in homegrown nectarins. There are restrictions now in place in the Barmer outbreak area. So it takes in the, the Barmer Township as part of that as well. And there'll be a new 1.5 kilometre red outbreak area as well. So PERSA staff will be visiting properties within that. The chair of Riverland Fruit Fly Committee, Jason Size, says commercial fruit
group movement restrictions are now in place for growers in the Barmara outbreak area. And uh, he did say in a statement that all host fruit must be treated and certified before leaving the Barmara outbreak area and is encouraging growers who are feeling overwhelmed and not sure where to start in dealing with the fruit fly to reach out to the local family and business mentor for free confidential advice. So uh, you can go to the Fab Scouts there or you can go to fruitfly.sa.gov.au or call the Fruit Fly hotline on 1300 666 010. That's 1300 666 010 if you need some advice on Fruit Fly there. We'll head across to the Bureau of Meteorology now to see what's in store for the rest of today and into the weekend. Senior forecaster Jenny Horvat joins me. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. So how are things looking on this still continuing warming trend by the looks of things? Yeah, that's right. Things are pretty stable and we still have our high pressure system situated south of the bite. So that's maintaining that southeasterly airstream over the state. So we are seeing those winds get a little bit um, gusty at times, sort of mostly lee of the ranges. And we are seeing a bit of freshening with our sea breezes as well with those um, southerly breezes through there. It's been a bit of a cloudy start for some in the south this morning um, and out in the far west. um, But it was generally a cool start today. Um, Minimum temperature are still sitting around two to five degrees below average for this time of year and we did see some very light um, precipitation um, around those windward coasts and ranges but really we haven't picked up anything more than the odd point two around the state for the last 24 hours. We are seeing a little bit of high cloud drifting across um, from the northwest so there's um, quite a bit of moisture up in WA and the NT at the moment. We're not expecting to really see any weather with that and there's maybe the, um, the very slight chance to see a little bit of shower or thunderstorm activity in the very far northwest of the state later today but we're really not expecting the weather to come across the the border but quite a bit of cloud up there and we are seeing some of that streaming off elsewhere across the state but it is remaining relatively dry. The similar pattern on Saturday, that high pressure system is very, very slow moving. So we are still going to be maintaining those south to south easterly winds and still a little bit fresh at times, especially around the, the coastal fringes during the afternoon. Could see a little bit of light shower activity again tomorrow morning, but really just on our far western coast through there. The only other thing that's a little bit interesting, there's going to be a trough of low pressure that develops over the eastern states over the weekend. So on Saturday afternoon, we could see a little bit of shower or thunderstorm activity associated with that trough over the border drifting across our eastern border district so we are looking at that mostly around sort of south of the northeast pastoral district so say south of Broken Hill into potentially the Riverland the Murraylands it could um, see a little bit of activity pushing into the upper southeast as well but really I think most of that um, shower and thunderstorm activity will remain on the other side of the border. That trough's still lingering around on Sunday, but probably less likely to see that weather drifting across. And again, it would be really right on the eastern border districts and probably more likely in the afternoon. Further south, our high pressure system is slowly starting to to get a bit of a move. So that's our wind shifting ever so slightly, a little bit more easterly and giving us that warming trend as we head into Sunday. But it's Monday that we start to maybe see a little bit more activity more broadly across the state with that trough of low pressure. So a chance to see some um, shower activity across the agricultural area, pushing out into the into the west, across the Flinders district and the south of the pastoral district. So again, some shower and maybe some thunderstorm activity around on the Monday, more broadly across the state. But that system will move relatively quickly um, to the east on Tuesday. So really just affecting 
uh, eastern agricultural area, maybe the south of the northeast pastoral district of Tuesday as that system drifts away. We're looking at pretty much a dry day on Wednesday and then as we head into the end of the week there, we've got another um, trough coming across from the west. We've got quite a lot of model uncertainty with that one. So it is a little bit of a, a watch this space for the end of next week. But generally, we're not expecting a lot of rainfall, only a few spots with those um, windward showers out west and then with our showers and thunderstorms cumulative up until the end of Tuesday broadly two to five millimetres across the agricultural area western coast and south of the pastoral districts and with those thunderstorms we could see some isolated falls of five to 15 millimetres there Cassie. Thanks so much for that. Jenny Horvat from the Bureau of Meteorology. In the far west of New South Wales, it'll be partly cloudy tomorrow. There is a high chance of showers in the east, a medium chance elsewhere, but there could be a bit of a storm around as well. Overnight temperatures will fall to between 19 and 23 degrees, but the daytime temperature is getting quite warm to 30 to 36. The lower western will be partly cloudy. There's a medium chance of showers, most likely in the afternoon and evening. Also a chance of a thunderstorm there as well, getting a little windy overnight down to 15 to 19 degrees. Daytime temperatures, though, reaching the low 30s. More to come on the Country Hour as we approach 12.30. You're listening to the Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, it's lovely to have your company this Friday afternoon. It seems every week there's a new level of alarm when it comes to potato supply. Soon you're going to meet a potato farmer who can explain why different potato products are short while others aren't. Well, there's crisping potatoes, there's French fried potatoes, which is your hot chips, and there's fresh market potatoes. And now they are so different, they might as well be potatoes, onions and carrots. So how, how are these different potatoes used? I'll have more on that soon. And when you're driving around the state and indeed the country, silo art is a real highlight. I've just come back from New South Wales and the chance to see some of those great artworks is a, a wonderful part of a road trip. South Australia has some beauties and uh, a new one has been shortlisted for the 2022 Best Mega Mural Award and Best Rural Art Title. I'll tell you which one it is soon. But in the meantime, I'd love to know your favourite South Australian silo artworks and how much difference it's made to your town or perhaps to your travels and where you travel to. You can text me 0467 or phone 1300 991. That's all coming up in the next half hour. But first, to find out what's making news with Rory McLaren. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. A Ghana elder says there hasn't been enough community engagement in the lead-up to the introduction of an Aboriginal voice to the South Australian Parliament. The legislation is expected to be in place this year after the government gained support of the Greens. But Ghana elder Tim Ages says there are questions about what the voice will actually change. Another Qantas flight has been involved in a mid-flight drama. QF 430 to Sydney turned back to Melbourne Airport as a precaution. The pilots had received an indication of a minor engine issue. It is the third incident this week involving the 737 fleet. The state's Chief Public Health Officer Nicholas Spurrier says the state is having one of its worst mosquito seasons ever. Authorities are testing to see if mosquitoes in Adelaide are carrying Murray Valley encephalitis. The virus was detected in the Riverland last week. Now SA Health wants to know if it's also reached the city and suburbs. More ABC News at 1 o'clock.
Thanks for that, Rory, I should say. And uh, we've been talking a lot about potatoes uh, on this program, on other programs. When uh, potatoes are short, a lot of people notice it. Uh, I know my father could probably live on potatoes, so uh, a potato shortage is pretty dire if he uh, can't get his spuds. Uh, But it's been foreshadowed for some time, but pubs and fish and chip shops now say it's really starting to bite this potato chip shortage. Some businesses have actually resorted to making their own chips and Woolworth says the crunch is now affecting supermarket prices. Here's National Regional Reporter Eliza Borello. Making chips from scratch, even with a chipping machine, is a slow process. But it's the only way Perth burger bar owner Matt Graham Helwig can keep them on the menu. We started doing this on Friday, just the last Friday last week. So I'm actually loading the potatoes into the machine so then they'll get cut and put straight into the tub. And then we soak them for a few hours. And then we have to like half fry them and then fry them again. And then they're actually ready to go. So we have to, we have to do it this way now because we just can't get any chips. It's taking up to 20 hours of his working week. But Matt Graham Helwig says it would be almost impossible to open if he didn't. Especially at a sports burger bar, which every meal that we sell has chips. It'd be kind of like, what else could I do? Our wedges are too expensive. Sweet potato chips are too expensive. And you can't have onion rings or anything like that. So... It goes with everything that we sell, so we have to. Harry Stevens runs a business making potato crisps in Port Melbourne, and he's been hit by the potato shortage this month too. Demand for chappies at the moment is at an all-time high, um, and we just don't have enough supply to meet it. It could take up to a month to sort of get back to having a supplier there to supply our customers. The chip crunch is thanks to a perfect storm hitting the global potato industry. Michael Cooch from the industry body Ausveg says droughts in Europe and the United States have restricted supplies of imported potato products. And local chip producers have struggled because of wet conditions in key Australian chipping potato growing regions. Some of those um, adverse weather events that, that impacted northern Tasmania and, and particularly Ballarat region in Late 21 and early 22. He's hopeful potato crops currently in the ground will eventually ease the shortage. Potato crops, they don't grow and aren't harvested as quickly as some other fresh vegetables. And so it will take a couple of months before I think, um, you know, we're really seeing supply loosening up. Woolworths has confirmed there's now pressure on supermarket chip prices, while Coles is continuing to restrict purchases of frozen chip bags to two per customer. Back at Matt Graham Helwig's Burger Bar, there's been an upside of sorts to the shortage. He's decided his house-made chips are cheaper and will be staying on the menu. These chips do taste better and they're local. It's easier to get. You know you're going to get it. You're going to get the same chip every time, not compared to what we're getting the last five months. So we're going to stick. I think we'll just stick to this. Burger bar owner Matt Graham Helwig ending Eliza Borello's report. And uh, speaking of this shortage, uh, it's actually been, there's been a bit of a hot chip shortage uh, across Australia since December due to limited crop results last season. But what, I mean, they're using them there, but a lot of people have struggled to use fresh potatoes to fill the supply gap. And southeast potato grower Terry Buckley says it's because there's a world of difference between potatoes grown for hot chips, packet crisps and fresh for the supermarket. And he says the recent flooding actually isn't completely to blame for the shortage. There's a bit of confusion at the minute with the river flooding which really has very little to do with the hot chip issue because most of the hot chip potatoes are grown in Tasmania, Ballarat or here in the south east of South Australia. Only a few come from up at the river.
The river does a reasonable amount of the crisping potatoes because they have fresh out of the ground all year round. That and the Mallee does most of the supermarket potatoes. And the French fry potatoes then are only grown for six months of the year. So we normally plant them in the spring, harvest them from January, February, March, April, May and perhaps into, into June for some places. And then the remainder is put into storage sheds and they are then used for the, the next six months. And that's why we have the trouble we have now because it's not this spring we've just had, it's actually the spring before that was where the problem happened. We didn't get enough spuds grown, particularly in Tasmania, and then they had a terribly bad thunderstorm through the middle of the potatoes in Ballarat, all of which reduced the yields. So then they had to get into the storage sheds earlier than you'd like, and then the storage sheds have run out, and that's why the problem always shows up around Christmas time. And now the companies have started on the fresh New Year's crop, so the problem should go away in the next month or two. Have there been any similar problems with crisp potatoes? crisping industry they were able to just struggle through with potatoes they've been having to cart potatoes from atherton tablelands to adelaide to keep going and source potatoes from everywhere they possibly can so i think if you buy some crisps at the moment you may well be a bit disappointed with the quality you see in your packets but they've been having to make crisps out of anything they can find and uh within you know another month or something that should improve again as well So there's been a lot of confusion about this chip shortage and people wondering why you just can't take different types of potatoes and use them. Can you explain a little bit about the different sorts? Well, there's crisping potatoes, there's French fry potatoes, which is your hot chips, and there's fresh market potatoes. And now they are so different, they might as well be potatoes, onions and carrots because we very rarely cross paths. They all have specific varieties and those varieties are owned by the various companies that we grow them for. And then they're grown in different locations and they just have different qualities, basically. Obviously, the French fry ones are long and thin, the crisping ones are round, and the supermarket ones obviously have to look very nice. So they're very different. And what potatoes are you growing out here? So we're all processing potatoes here. We do crisping potatoes, French fry potatoes, seed potatoes for next year, and we export crisping potatoes to Asia for for their crisp market. And how's the season been going? Going pretty well at the minute. We're a month late on most of our potatoes and where we really should be. And this is what happened last year, which has sort of led to the shortage, basically. The spring was cold and wet, and so we do rely now on a very nice, long, good autumn. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to get them finished off as well as we'd like to. But at the moment, they look pretty good. Could the same thing happen? Could there be another shortage, or are conditions looking better this time round? We do need a good autumn to get the potatoes finished off and there were a couple of other factors as well. We used to send the wedges from here to New Zealand, they don't make any wedges there and they used to send us fries back and during the pandemic there's been no refrigerated containers available to ship them across so the potatoes we'd normally get from New Zealand were not able to come across and there were poorish crops and issues in Europe and America so they didn't have any spare potatoes to send so it was a perfect storm that affected everyone this time so it's unlikely that you'd get that affecting everyone next time so you can never say never with agriculture but we just hope that we've got it right and we'll have enough. Still a good time to be in the spud business? Well, it's always an interesting time in the spud business. It's obviously very expensive and we've got some more money to help us with costs that have increased in fuel and fertiliser, but a lot of other costs have gone up. and So the risk just gets higher and higher. You sort of get more money, but if you have a loss, you've lost a lot of money. So it's always a risky game, but it's always been interesting. 
not all crisp potatoes are created equally. Uh, you have a premium crop out here. If you hold your chips up to the light when you get them and have a look at them, they sometimes have little clear windows in them, they have little orange lines around them, they have funny edges on them. Those are all you know, issues you can have when you're growing your potatoes and you've got to grow them in a very, very even sort of environment, keep their moisture just right, get their nutrient levels right all of the way through and look after your seed exceptionally well. And if you get all of that right, you'll have a potato crisp that's the same from one side to the other. And that is not easy to do when you're dealing with Mother Nature. That was Southeast Potato Farmer Terry Buckley speaking with Elise, uh, sorry, Elsie Adamo. Had a text in from Greg saying, My son bought an unknown variety of potatoes at a farmer's market. They were so delicious, but drama. I still don't know the variety. Greg, that's terrible. I hope you can go back to the uh, market and perhaps find out which one. Also, I think you can get apps and things like that because I, when I go on walks, I take photos of flowers, and that, which ones I don't know, so I can learn them and uh, the app tells me which flowers are, are which. So maybe you can do that for spuds as well. I'm not sure. Anyway, we've got more to come on the country. I'm wanting to know where your favourite silo art um, examples are, particularly across South Australia. I've had a text in from uh, Peter from Linden Park who suggests Warabra. Warabra does have an absolutely magnificent silo art. I think it uh, celebrates the forestry history in that part of the town. There's a beautiful little red robin on there as well. That is a, a wonderful example. I'd love to have them keep coming. The number to text in, 0467922891 or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one. It's 19 minutes, or coming up to 18 minutes to 1. January 26, the ABC gives you the best seats in the house for Australia Day Live to honour country and celebrate the Australian spirit. A fireworks and maritime show on the harbour with performances from some of our biggest stars, Casey Donovan, Dami Im, Christine Arnu, William Barton, Isaiah Firebrace and lots more. A concert for the country you won't want to miss. Australia Day Live from 7.30 this Thursday night on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. On digital and on mobile. ABC South Australia and Broken Hill. Now, I don't know if you've been driving around the state and the country the way I have, but if you have, have you seen some impressive silo art on your drives this summer? As I was saying, text 0467 991 or phone 1300 I'd love to know why they're your favourites and perhaps whether it's made a big difference to your town or on the flip side to your travels. Maybe you made a bit of a detour. I know we made a detour to see one in New South Wales. My husband really wanted to see the one at Dunny Doo that featured Winks. So we uh, stopped by to check out that one. That was a great one to see in New South Wales, but they're all over the country now. So I'd love to know some of your favourites and why. Text 0467922891 or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one. I'm asking this because Butte, it's Butte silo art, has been shortlisted for both the 2022 Best Mega Mural Award and the Best Rural Art Title. And artist Scott Nudge says the community requested the silo represent women in the regional areas in bright colours. I mean, it's the same as painting something small, but I guess it's just like a lot more steps involved. To access the full height, you need to have an elevated work platform and then you just kind of like break it up into little pieces and yeah, I guess it's the same as painting something small, it's just bigger. 
to, to do the larger scale stuff though, you do need to have obviously a lot more paint and um, just like upscale with your tools. So like instead of rolling it on, we would use a big spray gun, just covers a lot more area at, at one time. I work as a duo with my best friend, Jan, Jan Berkner. He goes by the name of Crimson. Um, so yeah, we do, we do all of our projects together. How long did it actually take to complete the artwork? Uh, I think it was just under three weeks. And yeah. how long would you spend, I guess, in, in a week? Oh, we were there like 10, 10 hours a day, every day. I think maybe we had one, one or two days off. But the only thing that kind of slowed us down was the wind. So, and one thing that we never thought about when we were going out there, we were like, oh, maybe the, it'll rain and that's definitely going to throw us off. But one thing that we didn't expect is that like, when you're working 20 metres up in the air, especially in those sort of like open plains, it can get quite windy at the top. And because we're using spray guns, it's, it's like pushing the paint from like hitting the silo when you're spraying it out. It really slowed us down a bit. The painting kind of depicts a girl pushing a vintage bike along train tracks. Was that yeah. your idea or was that a brief from the town and community? Uh, it was our idea. Uh, we did have a brief from the town and community, but the brief was pretty open and was basically they just wanted to represent their area um, and for it just to be a very vibrant mural but um, we thought it'd be good to have like most of the silos that I've seen have been um, depictions of um, like male farmers and I thought oh, it'd be good to have a woman on there and, and like and to pick some younger people so there's not like any specific narrative in mind when, I'm, when, we, when we designed it but it's just yeah just kind of re representing the area with a different take on it. Yeah, and was it, I guess, important for you as an artist and the community to include local fauna and flora and agriculture too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So everything in there is, is local to the area, like the basket full of like native flowers, all the birds are, are local to the area. In the background is the Hummock Ranges, which is seen in the background of, um, of Butte, and then like the local railway station. The rooster on the side is the is the mascot for their local football team. So yeah, everything's just kind of like little Easter eggs and hints into representing their community. And as a mural artist, you're doing these large scale pieces quite a lot. But has painting silos and water tanks in regional towns kind of become more popular recently? Well, this was my first silo that I've painted. I've definitely noticed a lot more being done ever since the silo art trail began. I, I do get asked a lot more since doing this um, to quote them. But it's definitely a trend. I think it brings a lot of tourism into smaller areas. And did you get any feedback from the local Butte community? Oh, yeah, it was very positive. Like, um, everyone's very happy with it and proud. And how does it feel being shortlisted in the National Street Art Awards? Yeah, it's cool. Uh, yeah, I, I hadn't heard of the, art, the award before, but, um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's pretty cool. It's nice to be recognised for something that you've done. Artist Scott Nudge. Barunga West Council CEO Mari Walkup says she hopes it's the first of many murals in the York Peninsula region. The artists, I think, have done an amazing job by trying to get the themes included on the silo that the community told them they wanted through the survey. And silo art is becoming quite popular across the country. What do you think these murals add to country towns like Butte? I think it gives communities a sense of pride and I also think it's a brilliant way to attract visitors and tourists to each community. Look we've got a, a store in um, Butte that does amazing burgers, they're like the Butte burgers I think they call them and, and other takeaway foods and they 
sell souvenirs and my understanding is they've been quite busy since the um, silo art was completed so it really does make a difference and it also uh, makes a difference for the wider region so Mid-North and York Peninsula it attracts people to take the journey and visit our regions and, and what we have to offer in our regions. And what was Council's reaction to the artwork being shortlisted in the National Awards? Well, we only found out this morning, so we, we're very, very excited. So it's been shortlisted for the Best Mega Mural Award and also the Best Rural Art Title. And we'll find out in February the outcomes of that. But we're pretty confident because it has been liked on social media um, a lot, the, the Butte Silo Art. And people do um, talk about Butte as being one of the best silos in Australia. Barunga West Council CEO Mari Walker bending that report by Bethany Alderson. And uh, it's great that there's an award for these because they are quite remarkable artworks. So I'm glad that people are getting recognised because it can't be easy translating a picture that you have in your head or on a piece of paper onto such a massive canvas that's also round as well. So I am in awe of the the people who do this artwork because it is just beautiful and it's wonderful to um, hear some of your favourites from around the country and state as well. Text 0467922891 or call 1300222891 if you'd like to let me know yours. Mariam from Ironbank says, Lighthouse and Sea Life at Stansbury is nice. Drove out of town a couple of k's to see it. That is a great Great one there on the York Peninsula as well. And Lucas loves the big one, the one of the big kangaroo, I should say, on Kingscote. Well, I guess on Kangaroo Island, you have to have something with the kangaroos on it. But they're beautiful and diverse, these these silo arts. So let me know your favourites. Text 0467 922 891 or phone 1300 222 891. Know your emergency plan this summer. A third consecutive London. And rely on ABC to be with you. What can I do? Broadcasting up to the minute critical information. We have issued an emergency warning. Online at ABC Emergency and on your local ABC radio. ABC Radio, reliable source for information. Stay safe, stay connected. I don't know what I'd do without the ABC. Download the ABC Listen app and stay connected with your local ABC radio station. On digital and on mobile. ABC South Australia and Broken Hill. Now we know that uh, there's a lot of water in the river at the moment in both the Murray and the Darling rivers and this can mean a massive spawning event but did you know that the iconic Murray cod has all but disappeared from large sections of the Darling River in western New South Wales according to an eight-year river monitoring program. The survey run as part of a Commonwealth Environmental Water Office program didn't find any Murray cod in the large reach between the towns of Burke and Louth last year and only found six over the last three years. Now, the native fish has been an important part of Indigenous culture for thousands of years. It's an iconic species for Australia and the situation is being described as a disaster by river communities. Dr Paul Frazier is leading the monitoring program and he told Hannah Jose the cod's numbers are now so low and natural recovery actually looks impossible in that section of the river. Look, our findings with the cod are quite alarming. In our last three years of surveys, uh, and, and this is with, with very experienced people using uh, all of the right survey equipment, uh, we've only been able to find six Murray cod in that reach, which is um, 
really alarming. And in our last survey in 2022, uh, they didn't find any. What do you think is behind this reduction in Murray Cod numbers? Look, I think that they've been impacted by a lot of things over a long time, but, but certainly the large droughts that, that ended in sort of like 2019, 2020, 2020 it was, was certainly impacting on these fish. There, was, there wasn't a lot of quality water around. So carp certainly have an impact on them. Removal of, of their habitat, like removal of snags and large logs, lack of connectivity up and down the river through our weirs and other, other things. Heavy fishing at various times, including historical fishing when there was commercial fishing in the area. Yeah. Uh, but I think the main the main issue with with them right now is, is or main two issues are probably just water, reliable, good quality water, and and the carp uh, seem to be a growing issue. Mm. But we've had major flooding for the last couple of years. Has that not done anything to help their numbers recover? Well, that's why I'm most alarmed. Our most recent survey in 2022 was after a couple of years of good flows. Um, and we were hoping to see more fish, more cod, more native fish, but we didn't. Uh, it's hard for them, hard to see how they can breed back. Uh, there's, there's not enough partners to do that. So what is the alternative? Is there an artificial way to improve their numbers? Yeah, well, look, we can stock cod uh, very well, and we've been doing that for years around the Murray-Darling Basin. We really need to make sure that those fish that are stocked have good quality water and reliable water. I mean, they're not that mobile, really. They, don't, they, they can move a bit. They tend to have home patches, so they're susceptible when when things like the, the latest drought dries the all, all of the water out. We can't really sustain another event like that for these native species. We just we'll just lose them. Um, and large iconic fish like the Murray cod are just too important to lose. I think. And what makes it so important? What are the uh, ecological impacts if we do lose them? Ecologically, the cod are the, the apex predator in the rivers. They're, they're the mm. things that that eat. Pretty much anything in there. If you get large, healthy populations, um, they will, you know, be at that have that role of, of controlling other other species that are coming through and, and, and being that, that apex predator. Um, we can recover the cod. The science of what we we know now can actually do it. It's really about a societal choice of what whether we value them enough to to um, to put in the effort and time to to recover them. They're a, a species we can breed, we can stock. Uh, we can make sure there's enough water for them to have healthy habitats. Um, and we can control the carp, I believe. The Murray Cod also has cultural and religious importance for First Nations people. Badger Bates lives in Broken Hill and has fished in the river since he was a child. He says the absence of the cod where they used to be abundant is an ecological catastrophe. I feel this is a disaster. And also the people, the so-called water management uh, managers, they should be ashamed of themselves, that's how I feel. I'm 75 years of age. I was reared up on the river. But people will come along and ask me a question and my people a question was holding me. But they don't listen, they just use us as a tick box. The Murray Cod, that fish, Orinda we call it, is very important to us. It created the river. It fed my people and myself for thousands of years. My people for thousands of years and me. For 75 years, I've reared up on it, and now it's a disgrace we can't get it anymore. But the so-called managers, again, they can take the water, kill the fish, but when the cod spawns in the river around December, you are not allowed to catch that fish. It doesn't matter what colour you are, the fisheries will book you. 
But then the government people can kill that fish by taking the water out of the river, and nothing's done. When they take the water out of the river, they kill everything. The river just dies. The water is not managed properly for the people what depend on the river. Not the big developers. They can take the water. They can make big dams and take the water. But there is a lot of black people that live on the Darling Barker. They're just poor. They're just trying to live. We're all trying to live. And we got no water storage. If you look back at all the records, you go to archive, you'll see people on the Darling Barker, on the river out this way, where they catch a lot of fish. A lot of them people was professional fishermen. Every race depended on the river and on that fish to survive and also to make a living. But now there's not, nothing. But Cam Lay is Director of Freshwater Environment at New South Wales DPI Fisheries and says the disappearance of the cod in reaches of the Darling is an isolated event. It's a bit of an outlier to some degree because the data that's been analysed from DPI Fisheries sort of has shown that Murray cod populations right across the basin um, are probably trending upwards over the last 20 years. However, that's not consistent from site to site. There are, certainly are some areas where, for, for some reasons, um, Murray cod have been disproportionately affected, and I think this area between Burke and Louth is one of those. And how many other sites across the basin like this reach between Burke and Louth would there be that are anomalous, as you say, where the populations aren't um, showing an upward trend? It's difficult to give an exact number, but as I said, we've taken effectively all the data that we have from right across the Murray-Darling Basin for the last 20 years and then and, and considered what the what the sort of the long-term trends are. I understand it's probably difficult to give an exact um, figure. Are you able to give like a ballpark number? Are we talking dozens, hundreds? Uh, it's very difficult to give that number. As I said, the, we, we just take data from all our sites in New South Wales uh, and then make an assessment about what the trajectory of those population trends is. That was the Director of Freshwater Environment at New South Wales DPI Fisheries, Cam Lay, ending that report by Hannah Joes. Hopefully this big flush of water that the Darling is getting will help turn that situation around, but we'll keep following the fortunes of the Murray Cod in that particular reach of the, the Darling Barker River between Burke and Louth, where it does seem as though the Murray Cod are struggling quite a bit. That's about all we have time for in the program today. There's more online at ABC net.au slash rural though if you're keen to check out what's happening in agriculture over the weekend. In the meantime though, Sonia Helfeldoff's with you this afternoon. Hi Sonia. Hello Cassie. Really good to be with you. Now I yesterday during the course of the program I got uh, a text message that was obviously a scam but I think one that easily people would fall for. If you remember the Hey Mum scam that sort of um, basically said look I've dropped my phone can you send me some Money. I know on some people, smart people who fell for that. Exactly. One. Well, now there's a different spin on it. Definitely comes up as mum, uh, as the name, no number, but mum, and saying, left my credit card at home. Can you just send me 350 so I can pay for my groceries and I'll pay it back as soon as I get home? Now, we're going to talk to police about that particular scam. Plus, first up on the program, three significant Moreton Bay figs down in the Burnside Council area. One resident's asking, why? Oh. Goodness, keep listening. ABC Local Radio, heaps to come this afternoon. It's coming up to one o'clock. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.